Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Piper Kerman, and I am the author of the memoir, Orange is the New Black, and I'm also a board member of the Women's Prison Association, and I am very excited to be here today in conversation with Lara Bazelon. So Lara Bazelon is here today to discuss with me her new book, her debut novel, A Good Mother. Lara is the professor of law and the director of the Criminal Juvenile Justice and Racial Justice Clinical Programs at the University of San Francisco. She has written nonfiction books, op-eds, essays about the nature of crime and justice. She is a vigorous, passionate advocate for criminal and racial justice, and I would say also a, um, a champion of difficult seams uh, that confront us as a, as a community and a society when it comes to the criminal legal system. And she always strives to put bathos and empathy first. So Lara's new book, her debut novel again, A Good Mother, examines the intricacies of motherhood, the legal system, and moral obligation. And the book brings to life the trial of a woman named Luz, a 19-year-old young woman, a new mother of an infant daughter, who's accused of killing her husband, who is an enlisted man in the army. Uh, her, the fellow new mom, also the mother of an infant and a sort of storied public defender, Abby, strives to keep Luz out of prison sympathizing with the struggles of parenthood, even as Luz is caught in this incredible crucible of the criminal legal system and the tragedy that has played out in her personal life. And when new evidence emerges and the trial turns towards an outcome that nobody expects, Abby and Luz must both answer this sort of riveting question, which is what does it mean to be a good mother? Uh, Lara and I are going to be discussing a lot during the next hour, and I want you all to ask your questions too. So if you are watching along with us, please put your questions in the text chat on YouTube, and we will be getting to those later in the program. We will be sure to save some time for your questions about uh, both the page-turning novel that Lara has, has written, but also all of these very powerful underlying real-world issues um, that the novel puts forward. So, Lara, I'm, uh, congratulations, first of all. The book was published, correct me if I'm wrong, last week? It was. First of all, thank you for that beautiful introduction. It was very generous, and it's a complete honor to be talking to you. So thank you for doing this. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, the book, I mean, I have so many questions about the book. The book, as a, as a former criminal defendant myself, of course, the book brought up, brought up all kinds of issues. But before we even dive in, you know, you are, you know, a, a much lauded professor of law um, with specialties around uh, criminal defense, around exonerations and congratulations. I know that you were uh, lawyering in a successful exoneration of a, a young man who had spent many years in prison for a crime that he did not commit in Louisiana and that he was just released. So congratulations on that powerful success. Um, so to have that happen at the same time that your debut novel comes out is really, you know, 
quite an accomplishment. It's quite a quite a quite a few days that you've experienced. Congratulations. My question upon reading the book, which is a total page turner, in addition to putting forward issues that I'm very passionate about and very interested in, it's also just an incredible courtroom drama and an incredible page turner that kept me up late at night, um, long past my, my scheduled sleep time. So, so thanks for that. But the thing that I really wondered, you know, so you're a law professor and you've written you know, nonfiction, you've written uh, an amazing book called Rectify about restorative justice and, and wrongful convictions. And I believe you have a forthcoming nonfiction book also about motherhood called uh, Ambitious Like a Mother. But I wanted to know why a novel? What drove you to write a novel? Um, you are a truly impressive person who's done a lot of research. So thank you. And thank you for mentioning the exoneration. And Utico, if you're watching, I'm excited to know that that's happening and that you're somewhere nice and comfortable. Um, yeah, it has been a total whirlwind and completely surreal. So to answer your direct question, I've been thinking about this. And I think one of the things about being a lawyer is that you have to be completely wedded and stapled and pasted to your facts. You can't change them. And for defense lawyers, people are always accusing us of doing something dirty and tricky, even when we're not. And that would happen to me a lot. Like I would get a witness statement and the prosecutor would say, oh, well, that's just because you lied and said that you were the prosecutor. That's why this person told you this. So anyway, as someone who files things in court, I'm really paranoid about getting things absolutely correct and never misstating a fact. And even to the point where in my nonfiction <laughs> writing. I wrote this column for Modern Love in 2015. I hadn't really written anything for a popular audience much before that. And I asked the editor if I had to send him proof of my divorce because I had mentioned it. And I thought maybe he actually needed the, the certificate to prove the fact. So that's how sort of focused I am about facts, facts, facts. And with mm -hmm. a novel, you're free to create your own facts. You're not wedded to a set of facts that you can't change. And so to me, that was a really interesting creative opportunity to explore the kinds of issues that I like to explore as an advocate and as a nonfiction writer. But I thought if I can create my own characters and create my own scenario, I can push my own beliefs and the reader's suspense to an extreme. And that part of novel writing really appealed to me. So, I mean, you certainly do that in the book. The book is absolutely a page turner. There are some um, jaw-dropping reversals that happen in the course of the story. I'm really loath to give up, you know, too many spoilers or plot points, but fundamentally the book brings the reader to a protagonist, Abby, who is a public defender in Los Angeles. And she is, has uh, been very successful in ways that are, frankly, unusual for most public defenders uh, who have a very tough road to hoe. And uh, she is called upon to defend a young mother, a 19-year-old young woman who has unquestionably killed her husband on an army base in Germany and is brought to the U.S. to stand trial. And so... Uh, I, I, I am almost, it's hard for me to know where to dig in, but one of the things that I really appreciated as someone who has been in the shoes of a criminal defendant was the illumination of the complexity of the relationship between a defendant and their defender. And I wondered if you, and so for me, you know, as a, as a former criminal defendant, you know, you're 
defense attorney brings you often, you know, the, the most difficult news and the most difficult choices. And I really thought that you did a beautiful job bringing that to life uh, with these two women. And both of these women are also facing a whole host of additional choices in addition to the case, because both of them are the mothers of infants, little babies, and that is informing all of their choices. Why was the question of motherhood so important for you to bring in, in addition to all these questions around right to counsel and, you know, some of the mo a, a capital case, um, all of the intricacies of a courtroom, which you bring to life in a way that is not at all dull or um, procedural? Well, thank you for saying that. I thought it was important to talk about motherhood because to me, motherhood is often inextricably bound up in the criminal justice system. And while this is fiction, I also wanted it to have resonance in the real world. And the truth is, as much as the system is cruel to men, in some ways it's crueler to women and it's oh, yeah. crueler still to mothers. And I wanted to really put that front and center for the client because she had so much on the line and her decisions are entirely driven by not wanting to be separated from her child. You can almost argue that every single decision she made once her child was born was, was driven by that purpose. And then once she gets tangled up in the system, as you say, every choice confronts the possibility that they're going to be permanently separated from each other. And I think that happens to a lot of mothers, right? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that was apparent to me when I was incarcerated, I was not a mother when I was incarcerated, but if the, the majority of women in the system are mothers. And most of those mothers are the mothers of minor children under the age of 18. And so one of the things that I think um, isn't perhaps not well understood by many people who don't know a lot about the system is that for women in the system, women and girls, um, questions of gender, realities of gender tend to make their experience of punishment even more punitive. So whether that's around issues of reproductive freedom or health um, and the neglect, therefore, or uh, the danger of sexual assaults. And, you know, men who are incarcerated or in the system are also under that in danger of that. But women are. Um, uniquely preyed upon, I think. And as you point out, this central question of family and of the care of children, because the majority of mothers who are in the system are also single heads of household. Um, and so the, that punishment um, that the system brings to bear punishes far more people than just the woman in question. You know, in Lose, you do not give us um, a paper doll, though. You, she is not sort of a simple, um, wrongfully accused person. There is a very significant question that runs throughout the book about the events that put her into the courtroom in the first place. And I really respect the degree to which you imbue each of the characters, but especially these two women who are at the forefront of the story, with um, far more complexity and, uh, and questions, real serious questions for the reader about whether they like these characters, whether these characters are, quote unquote, yeah, the sort of the innocence and the culpability of these characters and 
the quality of their decision making. Did you know that you wanted to focus on on female protagonists and on issues specific to women when you decided to write this novel? Or, you know, what was that process? I did. I really did. I mean, for the client, I wanted it to not be clear cut because I thought that the story would lose a lot of momentum and interest if it was just obvious from the beginning that she was kind of a Farrah Fawcett burning bed, so-called battered woman. And I didn't want it to be that flat and kind of Hallmark movie-ish. I wanted her to be really complicated in the way that my real life clients are incredibly complicated, three-dimensional people. And I wanted her motives to, in some ways, remain unknowable. And part of that too is that I think attorneys like to believe that they really know everything that there is to know about their clients. I mean, you and I were talking about the attorney-client relationship Sometimes I think there's a bit of arrogance in that relationship and a bit of inequality built, built into it where the attorney sort of thinks that they know how to tell the client's story and they really know who that person is inside and out. And it's not it's not almost ever true. And I wanted to really make that point that, first of all, she was pretty empowered to make almost every single important decision in her own trial. And I really wanted that to be true, even though she was mm -hmm. young. And I wanted her to be young because so many people caught up in the system are young, are teenagers. And, and, and that's just terrifying when you think about whether they're guilty or innocent, just the massive consequences that they're facing, that you could, you could be incarcerated for life without the possibility of ever getting out, which was the, one of the options in this case, or not option, but cons potential consequence. And then mm -hmm. in terms of featuring a female trial lawyer, I felt strongly about that too, because I feel like, I mean, I don't know what you felt growing up, if you ever really thought about prosecutors versus public defenders. But certainly when I was in law school, you know, the prosecutors were the ones who became judges and became big law partners and just went on to have these like pretty flashy careers. And they were seen as, as people who had a future and public defenders were seen as people on a road to nowhere and were often really stereotyped and shown in the media to be kind of losers and fools. And that's so far from the truth. And I think some of the best lawyers are public defenders. And then I feel like now, and I don't, I'd be curious to know what you think about this too, because I know you follow criminal justice reform really closely. I feel like that's starting to change. And public defenders are really kind of having a moment or maybe approaching having a moment where they're being nominated to be judges. And Joe Biden is bragging that he was one. Mm -hmm. And yet I feel like still when we think about even those sort of subset of cool ones, they're usually men. And we don't associate fierce advocacy necessarily in the courtroom with women, particularly when it comes from the defense side. And because I know so many amazing female trial lawyers and public defenders, I felt like it was really important to create that kind of a character. You know, I've always been struck. One of the only um, really plausible political paths for women has been the path of the prosecutor. And of course, we now have, you know, our first female vice president who was a prosecutor. I have testified uh, in the U.S. Congress several times, in the Senate and in the House, and I'm always struck by how many of the senators, particularly the female senators, are former prosecutors. It has been one of the only reliable paths towards, you know, and, and prosecutors are often, I think, fairly called out for using the prosecutorial role as a political stepping stone. Certainly no one is accusing public defenders of doing that. Um, I think one of the things that definitely emerges from the book when someone is familiar with some of your work in the legal sphere is this zealous defense of people 
for, I mean, I think one of the most common questions that that defenders, defense attorneys, and particularly public defenders get is, well, how can you defend those people? Because there's no question that there are times when one is defending a, a, a client who has caused harm. There's no, no, no lack of clarity about that. And that is the case in this defendant in this book. There's no question about whether she has killed her husband. The question is around the circumstance. So I thought you were actually very even-handed in your portrayal of the prosecutor in the trial. Um, the prosecutor is a woman uh, and a pretty um, straightforward, sort of the straight shooter. Um, it is ironic that defenders are so often uh, accused of being uh, slippery or, or, or less than direct or clear-cut, when we know that the same is true of prosecutors and that wrongful convictions are almost always tethered into prosecutorial misconduct. I was curious about the judge in the book, because the judge, uh, I I, can you elaborate a little bit about the character of the judge that you created? <clears throat> because I thought that was um, an interesting uh, take on that pathway towards power, which so frequently takes place um, launching off of the prosecutorial role. So... I know this is probably not going to be believable to people who have read the book, or maybe if they do when they finish, but the judge is the most drawn from life character in the book. He is wow. a racist, sexist, power hungry, absolutely odious human being. He actually wasn't that bad. His rulings were actually pretty much fine, except one truly horrible one in the beginning. But everything that he did, including... The, 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 including putting someone who refused to cooperate with his unreasonable demands in jail, mm -hmm. I saw happen. So I had a trial where, I mean, this is just unbelievable. And it's not, he's not one person. He is a composite of four or five of the most terrible people that I had to appear in front of repeatedly when I was practicing in Los Angeles. Almost mm -hmm. all of them were white men who had been the U.S. attorney. They had been at the top and then they had become federal judges. And they were just unbelievably nasty and abusive. And I'll just give you an example. Um, I had a case where it involved a girl who had to testify. She was 14 and she was supposed to testify against my client and she didn't want to. And she refused. And of course the government had given her immunity. She wouldn't get out of her cell. The guards dragged her into court, literally dragged her and dragged her up to the stand and put her on the stand. This was outside the presence of the jury. And the judge said, look, you have to testify. You have absolute immunity. And she said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to testify against him. And he said, then I'm holding you in criminal contempt and you're, I sentence you to 15 months in prison. And mm. if you want this to be over, like you can come back and change your mind. And she spent over a year in custody that the jury hung. And then she testified in the next trial. I mean, he did that mm. to a 14 year old and it was the most ruthless, awful, abusive situation. Never mind the way that he talked to, to me. I mean, the, in the middle of a cross-examination, he told me to sit down and shut up. And I'm convinced that the jury hung because they felt like they weren't getting both sides of the story. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm disturbed, of course, to hear that. And I'm also not that surprised based on, you know, based on what I know about the system. So what was your hope? I mean, when you, when you relate that story and when you convey the story that's told in this book, What's your hope that the reader comes away with? I really, I mean, 
I hope the reader comes away with a lot of questions, but when it comes to judges, and I want to be fair, you know, the judges that I'm talking about are a minority, but they're not zero. And what I want mm -hmm. the reader to come away with is don't just assume because somebody has a black robe on and is sitting on a dais, they deserve to be there and they're using their authority and their power appropriately, because quite often that is not happening. And I think that we need to pay more attention to actually who it is who's getting appointed and because of my political views, I think that people in power now should really be paying a lot of attention to that. And I think we should just not be making assumptions about, about those people, who they've been historically over time and who we want them to be moving forward in terms of them being reflective of their community, in terms of them being diverse, but also just in terms of them being decent people and treating the people in front of them, the lawyers, the defendants, the court staff, with, with humanity and decency. And I guess, you know, this goes back to something else that you and I were talking about earlier, but the way that the process really strips the person who's accused of all humanity is mm. so ubiquitous. And I think that judges have a role to play in making that less so. So um, can we turn, can we return to Abby, who is, who is our true protagonist? There are a number of characters who really come into strong relief in the course of the book. But let's talk about how you went about creating the character of Abby. I'm very curious sort of about your process overall uh, in terms of writing the book. I, you know, I'm a writer of, you know, narrative nonfiction, so different than the kind of writing that you do. But I actually find, you know, the prospect of, of fiction writing is very intimidating to me. The idea, I mean, I, I find that, you know, sort of, uh, the Gordian knot of dealing with the facts of a true story is a very engrossing thing, but the almost limitless freedom of making up, you know, a fictional story is, is dazzling. So the development of that protagonist character is probably something that you, that, that was early in the process of writing. Um, I mean, how much of this is uh, a Romana Clef and how much of this is not? It's funny. So I had a different iteration of this novel that didn't end up getting sold. And she was the protagonist in that novel too. And some of the same characters existed. And mm -hmm. I had this amazing writers group in LA. I was so lucky. I was like the redheaded stepchild of this group, but it was, it was just these amazing women. And we would meet once a month and we would read each other's writing. They were all published writers and I was not. This was, I don't know, 10 years ago. And one thing they kept saying was, she's really not very likable. And... <laughs> And, you know, when, when it comes time to sell the book, that may be a problem for you. And I think it probably was in the initial book. And I kind of made my peace with the fact that for some people, she was not going to be very likable. I wasn't really interested in creating the trial lawyer girl next door who everybody can relate to because she's constantly apologizing and she's got her hands full, but she's doing a really awesome job, even as she's sort of you know, making self-deprecating remarks, but she's getting pats on the head for always making it to daycare. I didn't want that person. I wanted someone who was kind of on the zealot side of zealous, who was so zealous and so fixated on getting the outcome that she wanted that she basically became in some ways a little bit, she just started making some really poor choices, but the kind of choices that someone who is a, a true zealot would make. And I don't mean that in the relig religious sense. I mean that in the criminal justice sense. And I've known some men who are like that. You know, I've known them professionally. It's not as possible for women, I think, because we have these other responsibilities, at least women who have families. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted that person to exist in fiction and see what would happen to her in very extreme 
circumstances because I don't have that kind of, I wouldn't, I'm just not as single-minded. First of all, I'm not as good a lawyer, but I'm also just, I would shy away from some of those choices because I'm too scared. And I wanted to create someone who was not afraid, even if it meant they were doing some really perilous, reckless things. Mm-hmm. And she does. I mean, yes. So not a complete Ramada class. <laughs> no, because I just am not that brave or maybe a little bit that crazy. I mean, so as a former criminal defendant, I really had moments of identification with Luz in terms of the, I mean, that the, she is facing, you know, a death in prison sentence, uh, unlike the, you know, the relatively short sentence that I served in the end. But I, I had the powerful identification with her in many ways as the story progressed and she was faced with um, standing up to her own defense team and making a host of, of difficult choices. But I really also related to Abby because she is, uh, the, I mean, both of them are young mothers, but the book delves more deeply into uh, the impact of motherhood on Abby's professional life. I, uh, you know, you, congratulations on your book being published. I became pregnant when my book was first published and, you know, went on uh, and was very fortunate to go on on paperback tour with a four-month-old baby. And so these questions of motherhood, I mean, even a reader who, you know, may or may not be that interested in a criminal legal page turner in a, in a courtroom drama will find some fascinating, difficult questions about motherhood and ambition and profession. And so, and of course, motherhood and ambition is also the topic of the other book that you're, that you're working on, which has not yet been published. Um, how much did those debates draw from your own experience in terms of the deep challenges that the mothers of young children face when we are zealously focused on our professional ambitions, whatever those might be? That's a great question. And now I'm so curious to know how you handled that because it's so stressful to be on this book tour with a best-selling book and have a baby and be balancing all of these things. So, I mean, that's also just quite a challenge. In answer to your question, that is sort of my life's struggle in a way. I had a case when my kids were two and four that mm -hmm. was in LA and I was living in San Francisco and my client was innocent and he'd been incarcerated for 34 years. And mm. I left them for really long periods of time to retry that case. I, I mean, I didn't leave them on the street. I left them with their dad and their grandmother and, and their babysitter. But still, I was gone for a long period of time. And, and part of it was that my client's mom, this really amazing woman, her name is Wilma, you know, she told me early on in the case, like decade after decade, she had been praying that that something would happen in this case that would that would break it, break it open. And that she really felt like the project, the Innocence Project, and, and I guess me in particular, because I was a lawyer, that it was divine intervention and that she really mm. believed that there was there had been a divine intervention and that this was really directed from some higher power. And obviously, obviously, that's, you know, that's not how that's not, I, I'm not, not, that's not where I came from. Um, and I'm actually not a particularly religious or spiritual person, but I felt like reuniting her with her son was of such overriding importance. It overrode my own little kid sort of 
basic needs to have me around. And they were little, but when we talk about it today, we talk about how it was so important that he be back with his mom so that, and then I could come back and be with them. And I feel like that's the same struggle that this protagonist has where she leaves her baby every day to wind herself up in this other person's struggle to try to keep them with their child. She's trying to keep them together. And my motivation was really to bring cash back to Wilma, to his mom. And that's a motivation that's ironic because it ends up separating you from your family. And I, and that has happened, that story in less dramatic fashion has played out repeatedly, including when I was just in, in New Orleans and, you know, I, this is a much less big deal, but I missed my daughter's parent-teacher conference because that was the morning that Utica was getting exonerated. It always just seems like something is going to give. And when it's your client who needs you more, then it's the attention to your children that gives way. And I feel like it's this kind of existential constant struggle that a lot of mothers have to deal with. Right. The title of the book is not a good parent. It's a good mother. Right. I often, uh, you know, when I think about, you know, my own, my own kid is 10 now. And I think I, I read Abby's specific struggles in the course of this story. And the thing that I kept on sort of feeling indignant about on her behalf was you know, when they're that little, they just need a lot of love from everybody. It doesn't have to be like, why, why is so much of the burden placed solely upon the shoulders of the mother? Um, in the case of Luz's baby, Luz is the only parent remaining and, uh, and, and it's a much more precarious situation for that baby than it is for Abby's baby. Uh, and yet the judgment is still heaped upon Abby's shoulders. Um, I have a question before we start to open up. I, I, I've got my eye on the clock and I'm sure there are some fantastic questions. So I have lots of questions about your process of writing. And it sounds like you worked on this book for a long time. Correct? Long, long, long. It was an elephantine gestation. Yes. <laughs> so I, I have, again, I don't want to reveal too many plot twists. But there's an interesting writer's choice that you made, and that was to reveal Abby's interior life and a little bit of the interior life of her co-counsel, Will, who is, a much, who is an important character in the book, but a much more minor character than, than Abby, for example, and also Luz. But we do, not, we do not gain access to Luz's interior life. So in other words, you know, if you re it, when, you, when you pick up this book and, and read it and and stay up late like I did, you know, you'll be, you know, Abby's internal thought processes will be revealed, but Luz's will not. And I was very curious about that choice on your part and sort of um, how you arrived at that choice, like what your thought process was and what that meant for you in terms of putting forward um, both these two characters and also all of the underlying ideas and, and tensions because Luz is, you know, a woman of color, um, who is not a, a wealthy woman of color, and Abby is a white woman. And I, I thought about that a little bit as I thought about that question of, of voice and interior life. And I don't know if that was part of your process, but I was definitely curious about that question. Yeah, I made the decision not to give you a close-up interior of Luz's mind or the reader 
for two reasons. The first one is I really thought it was important that she be a woman of color because, mm -hmm. as you know, they're just disproportionately swept up in the system. And of course, that's actually something that Orange is the New Black is amazing, not just the book at telling, but the series at telling. I mean, it's just unbelievable and did something that no show has ever done in terms of the richness and diversity of these women and their backstories and their experiences. I mean, it's just, I don't know. It's just absolutely, there's nothing like it ever. <sighs> and, and I'm never going to be able to pull something like that off. But I really thought it was important that she be a woman of color. And so once mm -hmm. I made that decision, I felt uncomfortable appropriating her life experience and her mindset in some kind of a close third person where I was purporting to be inside of her mind. It made mm. me uncomfortable to do that as a white woman. But even if I had tried to do that, what made me stop and pause was actually that it created a plot problem for me. It created a storytelling problem for me because it doesn't really work if you know what she's thinking. And I didn't mm. know how to give enough of what she was thinking without giving everything away. And I think one of the keys of the book is how her two lawyers, Abby and Will, are constantly, particularly, unfortunately, Will, misunderstanding her and not seeing what's actually going on and, and sometimes really underestimating her. And mm -hmm. I think that's something else that happens a lot with attorneys and clients, particularly in these cross-racial relationships where you have a white lawyer and a client of color. And I wanted that dynamic to come out and I didn't know how to do it if you knew what she was thinking. And so for it to really work and for her to kind of show them both up, which she sort of does, I felt like she had to be unknowable to the reader, at least until the end. Mm. I mean, there are, the, the book is incredibly suspenseful. And, and I, I guessed that that might be at the heart of that decision as a writer, that, you know, you're right, it would be. Uh, you would take a lot of the tension out of the suspense if we had more of her interior life. But the reversals are are sometimes stunning <laughs> uh, and incredible. And, uh, you know, I read it and only from my own experience am I reminded that the truth is almost always much weirder and sometimes more shocking than anything anyone can script. I mean, many times in the course of the Netflix adaptation, people would say, oh, this seems like out of the blue. And I'm like, let me send you a URL to a news clip demonstrating to you how that is in fact totally happening in I our criminal legal system. I completely picture that. You sitting in a meeting with the showrunner and the writers and them saying, Piper, we just don't think that's really realistic when the guard you know, got sexually involved with this, with this prisoner. We just don't really think that that would have happened and they would have had this really complicated relationship. And it's like, no. That would have happened. I mean, it's just, mm -hmm. I feel like there's just a disbelief about how complicated people are when they're, when they're accused, when they're incarcerated. We just completely strip them of their humanity so we can look away from them and not care about the fact that we are warehousing them and abusing them. And to do that, we have to just believe that they're two-dimensional. And I refuse to engage in that fraud. I think the also the thing that's also true is that um, for lay people who are fortunate enough not to have had extensive experience with the criminal legal system, the disparity in power between you know a prosecutor, a judge, a jailer, and an and uh, you know a person who's accused or a person who's incarcerated, also you know those disparities and sort of uh, particularly when you're talking about prisons. 
the daily normative quality of those incredible inequalities in power um, give rise to astounding behavior and sometimes astoundingly abusive behavior, but just sometimes astoundingly weird behavior. And I did feel like there were a couple of scenes in this book that sort of captured that. Um, I want to turn to some of our questions. Um, th though, actually, I have one more question for you before I open it up. We have a, a number of, of fascinating questions, but there was one more. I wanted to return to this question of likability because in, in, you know, I think that comes up again and again when it comes to female protagonists and especially around topics having to do with motherhood. Certainly it's something that I thought a lot about a lot in the course of writing a memoir. And I also have taught memoir in prisons, in both men's prisons and women's prisons. I've taught, you know, personal narrative nonfiction. And when you are telling a personal story, um, you know, a, a true story, uh, something in the, the vein of memoir. Um, there is always this challenge of what I used to say to my students is, you know, you're not trying to make them fall in love with you, but what you are trying to do is get them on the train with you and to ride through some portion of your life, some, you know, some leg of your journey. You want them to be on your side enough to like ride side by side with you and be interested in what's happening. So, but that question of likability, you know, something that, you know, as a, a memoirist might struggle with. And then in the course of all of the ins and outs of the adaptation to the Netflix series and all of the other characters and, you know, the, the, the creation of the character of Piper Chapman, who is different from me in some ways, you know, that question of likability comes up again and again. And it's something that comes up in, in live in the courtroom all the time. I remember when I was appearing for sentencing that my defense attorney said, we want the judge, and my judge was a white guy who had been appointed by Reagan. He said, we want him to look at you in the class courtroom and think that you might be his niece or, you know, one of his daughter's friends. And that is not, uh, that's not necessarily something that most criminal defendants can pull off when you have a bench which is so disproportionately white and male and, you know, older uh, and comes from a, a very specific, uh, you know, personal and professional background. So I wanted, I was curious about that question of likability, because I think it's something that you must think about a lot, both in the course of, you know, all of your zealous defense of the accused, and also in the course of the, the things that you've chosen to write about um, as an author. You know, you saying your experience in the courtroom of you're getting that advice is so resonant for me. And I am not remotely surprised that that's what your attorneys told you. And I do not judge them for it. I think that was probably pretty savvy advice. But it's interesting. That was the advice that I would get too, is just to, even though I was obviously in the role of the attorney, but the more I could remind a juror of the girl next door, or the more I could remind the judge of, of his daughter, the better off I would be, and more importantly, my client would be. And so who could say no to that kind of direction? And it's always really bothered me. I don't know if there's any empirical evidence that that's true. And it's certainly very constraining and inhibiting in terms of 
certain ways of being an advocate. And as I've gotten older and grumpier, I've just been much more inclined to reject it. And it's funny, I was just in this New Orleans case, I was listening to the tape of the hearing that we had right before I went down there and we were arguing about when we were going to have it and all this stuff. And I just got pretty worked up about it. And then when we got down there and it was my chance to really talk about what had happened to my client, I got even angrier. And mm. I was pretty angry by the time my client's exoneration trial was over in LA all those years before. And I feel like that's perfectly acceptable and normal. And if I had been a man, people would have expected it. And maybe it didn't play as well. I mean, it was a calculated risk in all of these situations. It was a judge. It was actually a female judge both times. And I wasn't playing to a jury, but I do struggle with that. And in the nonfiction book I'm writing over and over, I've seen this likability issue come up to the point where if you look at these women politicians and you made the point that all of them or a lot of them take this path of being a prosecutor, they also are constantly struggling with how likable or unlikable they are. Look no further than Hillary Clinton, who has been haunted her whole mm. life for saying, I could have stayed home and had tea and made cookies, but instead I chose to have a profession. I mean, they wrote about it the night before the 2016 election. She told people that she was humbled to vote for herself. Basically, it's like, please don't hate me. Please don't hate me that I want this job, even though I'm the most qualified person who's ever run for it. And I just think the more we take that on, instead of defending ourselves by appeasing other people and constantly abasing ourselves and talking about how we're not worthy we feed into it. And I just feel like it's important to be good at what you do. And it's important to know that and embody that. And it's important to send that signal to younger women. And there's going to be people maybe who are put off by that. Okay. I can, I can, I can live with that. Although I also think in the memoir context, it's super, super, super charged because when people tell me, I really don't like Abby, I think she's awful. She's not actually me, but if people say, wow, Piper Chapman. I mean, it's hard for that not to feel deeply personal. And actually, I thought that both the book and the series did an excellent job of not making her unlikable. She wasn't like, wow, awesome girl who could be your best friend. She was someone who was super complicated and was confronted constantly with a variety of very harsh consequences and crazy situations. But you were on the train with her. You didn't necessarily want to be maybe her best friend, but she was absolutely three-dimensional human being with three-dimensional human being problems. And I feel like in the end, that's the protagonist that you want, not some flat person in like a B rom-com. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why Orange is the New Black won a bunch of Emmys and no one can remember rom-com circa 2019. I think... Uh, there is a very great thirst and appetite for uh, the kind of female characters that you put forward in this book. So that's certainly been my experience. Um, and I hope that, that you find that to be true as readers find the book and, and take it up and are kept up late at night like I was. Um, I don't want to run out of time for some of these questions that we've got coming in. So Let's turn to a few of the questions. Um, let's, let's start with a very local question first, and that is, people hold the Bay Area up as a beacon of progressivism, but the criminal justice system here seems too similar to everywhere else. Do you agree? Insights from your work. 
Okay, this is a tough one. So <clears throat> I think if we, if you had asked me that question two years ago, I would have had a very different answer. But we had someone who was very reform-minded run for DA and win, Chesa Boudin. And so he's been in mm -hmm. office now since the beginning of 2019. So it's been a little over a year. And I've been fortunate to get to do, I, I was on his policy team, so I helped craft some of those policies. And then as they've come into being, I've gotten to participate in some of that. And what I would say is that he is putting in place some pretty important reforms that are that are dramatic in terms of in terms of what they mean long term. And so I actually feel like San Francisco is now sort of in the same position as a place like Philadelphia, um, where there's just a very progressive person who's in the top local law enforcement job. Mm -hmm. That said, electing a reformer doesn't mean that all those other underlying problems go away. It doesn't change who we're arresting. It doesn't change who we're charging. It doesn't change mm -hmm. the cases that are getting brought to the DA. It changes really what happens once those cases are, are sent there. And so I, that's an important change, but it's not, it's, it's, I would say it's necessary, but not sufficient. And of course, Boudin is one of a wave of, you know, more progressive prosecutors in significant, significant municipalities around the country. So George Gascon was just elected down in Los Angeles you know, Krasner in Philadelphia, you know, uh, Chicago, a truly terrible female prosecutor was replaced with a, a less terrible female prosecutor. So uh, these are not the majority. I think there are something like, are there three? I can't remember if there are 3,000 or 6,000 prosecutors out there, but there's a lot of prosecutors out there and we have a handful of progressives. One of the things that I think is really striking about the Bay Area before we move on to another question, you know, I was actually born in Berkeley. I was not raised here, but I now have returned and live in Berkeley again. And I'm so struck by just the difference between Alameda County and San Francisco Alameda County is not, you know, in any way, shape or form progressive when it comes to the criminal legal system, you know, as evidenced by the terrible conditions at the Santa Rita jail, the Alameda County Sheriff's Department is uh, not winning any awards on humanity. <laughs> uh, and, you know, the, the prosecutor, prosecutor's office over here on this side of the bay is, is not um, progressive at all. So it's sort of an interesting disconnect between the values that voters hold in many ways and these very um, everyday and in some ways mundane systems that surround us um, and are sometimes really invisible. Like I really think about the Santa Rita jail as being invisible to most residents of Berkeley and Oakland, some of the most progressive places in the United States. Um, but I, I appreciate this question. Um, it's a good one. Oh yeah. If you saw, but the Alameda DA announced today, she's not running for reelection. So that's good news. That's going to open up that race and it's going to be a really interesting race, but I couldn't agree more with everything that you just said. I really hope we get a great candidate over here because I, I have often, you know, particularly in the last year have scratched my head about, you know, the beliefs and the rhetoric that we see among, you know, many, many people who live in the Bay Area and the reality of the criminal legal system that we have right here. Okay, back to the writerly questions. And again, keeping my eye, I want to make sure we get to all of them. So we talked a bit about um, what went into creating the characters, but are you willing to break, to, to go back into your process a little bit as, as, you know, as it did, in fact, take you a long time. I think about, you know, my own process in writing Orange is the New Black, 
And I really wrote in sort of scenes and segments. So like my first day in prison or, you know, an entire narrative plank around the transgendered woman who lived in the bunk next to me or being put onto the federal airlift and going on Con Air. And those, of course, were all true stories. But that's how I went about as my writing process. Um, more than that sort of, um, I almost think of it as a meditative character study that seems necessary to create the kind of fiction that you've accomplished in, in this book. I have a question for you about that. When you say you wrote in scenes and, and meditative phases, were you doing this chronologically or would you just have a memory and it was very distinct and you would write that scene out of time? Um, when I was first debating whether I even wanted to write the book, I sort of wrote about these scenes, like those three scenes, those three scenes or settings that I thought I was like, well, what would I want to write about that anyone would want to read about? And I sort of, you know, focused on those disparate parts of the story. Um, when I wrote my first draft, I literally wrote it chronologically, like month by like every chapter was a month. And I turned it into my editor and she was like, well, this really drags in some spots. <laughs> I remember there was one point at which she gave me a note and she's like, I think here you're trying to capture the incredible tedium of serving prison time. I'm like, yep. <laughs> so that's where a good editor actually, I mean, you know, that's where editing really comes in handy. You need other eyes on your prose. So true. It's funny. I think the biggest change I made from book one, which didn't sell to this book, which did is I just moved much more quickly. I always ask myself, uh, is this scene advancing the plot? And if the answer was no, I got rid of it. And it was a really harsh editing process, but I think it was absolutely necessary for, particularly for this kind of book. You just lose yes. people. If you, if you start looking out the window and describing the scenery, they want to be on this ride. They want to get to the next destination and you have to get them there. And that was yeah. something that was a hard lesson for me to learn because like you, I mean, because it's your own life or your own experience. And, and of course it's, it's very interesting. And also, as you know, writing is so hard that it can mm. be a beautifully written five pages and yet it all has to just go in an ash heap. And that's a really hard loss. I don't know how else to yeah. put it. It feels like a loss, but to answer your, the question, I, I try to proceed that way. I try to proceed chronologically, but what always ends up happening to me is I get this idea of something that's going to happen three quarters of the way through. And then I need to just write that down. I get completely obsessed with it, with this scene, and I can picture it in my head. And then I have a problem of how do I get there? I have, mm -hmm. so I wrote the scene of Luz's direct examination very, very early in the process. And then I had to like go back and think like, okay, now how am I going to get everyone actually to that place? So mm -hmm. I try to be chronological because it seems like the logical reasonable way to go about it, but I can't always stick to it. So, you know, in that, that's a great example, you know, I think without giving away too much of the plot, you know, Luz does take the stand and it is, you know, a moment of heightened conflict and there's a fascinating sort of reversal that takes place. So you zoomed in on sort of that incredible crucible moment for that character um, early in the process. And I'm sure that there were comparable moments for Abby as well. I mean, Abby is part of that moment, but it is sort of loses um, central moment there. Um, what were some of the key? What were some of the earliest pieces of Abby's character or narrative that that you focused on that brought her character into relief for you as a writer as you were working on the process? The times when I would skip ahead with her tended to be when she was talking to her best friend because I think of him as the conscience of the book, that he's the moral conscience. And yeah. so every time I was checking 
the outrageousness of what she was doing, I was checking it against him. And sometimes I, so I would move forward and I would think to myself, okay, well, what would Jonathan What would Jonathan say? say? And so that's when I would, that's sort of how I think her character got formed. And it's funny. So in real life, I have a best friend. He's been my best friend literally since birth. So we've been best friends for 47 years. And I do think of him, I mean, I'm not her, but I think of him as my conscience, as this person who's like, do you really think that that's a, that's a, that's a good idea for you um, (laughs) in your life? And, you know, everyone should be so lucky to have, have that person. I think in this book, Abby has literally one friend, (laughs) which is this guy. Um, But if you're going to have one, it should be that person. Yeah, Jonathan is is lovely in a lot of ways. Though so there's a couple of rough moments there as well. Um, okay, I know I'm keeping my eye on the clock. Oh, here's a good one that perhaps you'll be quick. You you may have a strong opinion about this already. Which actresses do you want to play the two mothers when this is adapted for the screen? Ah, oh, this is a question that I really hope I someday get to answer. And actually. I'm going to turn around and ask you when I'm done because you got to answer it. I mean, I don't know that you got to pick, but I don't know how you, if you had in in mind. It's funny because I think that the actress who they picked does, does embody, you know, some of you. So it, it seems like, I don't know how you feel about that. But when I look at her and I look at you, I'm like, okay, I can understand that casting decision in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, that must've been so interesting to watch somebody play you. Um I think for the for the defendant, I would like her to be an unknown actress that no one's ever heard of who has a breakout role. Kind of like, um, oh gosh, who was the mother in Room? Kind of like that actress. You know, it was her big... Oh, I, I do remember. Uh, yes, I remember. Um, she but plays, I can't remember her She name. plays Ma in, in Room. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's yeah. a young And she's mother. wonderful. She's amazing. It was like her breakout role. And now she's, you know, in every superhero Marvel film. So I would want someone like that who, you know, wasn't very well known. And then all of a sudden, boom. And then I don't know about the Abby character. I think I would want someone probably who has a wide variety of just a big emotional range and, and, and maybe, and maybe like a a warmth to them that doesn't completely come across in the book, a warmth Mm. and a ferocity. So I'm not actually sure who, who it would be. I haven't thought it through. Did you think about that? Not when I was writing the book, no. Uh, obviously, once once Genji Cohan was interested in, in adapting the book, uh, I did, and I had no choice whatsoever, and I was completely delighted with Taylor and all of her work. And I think, uh, you know, I, I think, I hope that my book puts forward a sense of humor, but my book is not comic. No, <laughs> although there's moments um, in Orange is the New Black that are very darkly comic. I mean... Yeah. In, so, yes, I mean, I think uh, something that I knew would be true of the adaptation because it was Genji Kohan was that there would be, you know, humor as well as drama. And I thought that was good because I think um, my opinion about the criminal legal system is that, in fact, no one is ever people may be shocked, but no one is surprised by its brutality. And focusing on the brutality of the system actually, um, I think, diminishes the people's humanity who are caught up in it. And I think that actually focusing on those moments of light and hope and, you know, humanity and kindness are much more important. And I I can only imagine that that comes up a lot, particularly when you're working on exonerations or on capital cases or, or other serious cases like that. 
but um, but yeah, I think I, I I was very and and Taylor is a dear person as well. In addition, but she she could carry sort of that balance of um, humor that was sometimes required of that role, and also yeah. some of the drama. Yes, she had a very expressive face. Has a very mm-hmm. expressive face. It's funny. I was thinking about Orange Is the New Black because um, I was reviewing this file because one thing my clinic is doing is now helping the district attorney's office out with these excessive sentencing cases where there are people who are rightfully convicted, but grossly excessively grossly over-sentenced. over-sentenced yes. And so the first batch that our clinic got in the racial justice clinic was women. And so I was reviewing a lot of these files and I thought about Orange is the New Black because one of the women kept getting write-ups, 115s we call them in California for, mm-hmm. I guess they called it fraternization, but essentially she was in a, somewhat of a romantic relationship with someone and she would snuggle in bed with her. And they they basically use that to try to punish her. And they did punish her repeatedly for that. And sure. that's something that when it's a consensual relationship can be a ray of hope and to have that kind of love and connection and closeness can be maybe almost the only thing that keeps you going and feeling like a human being. And of course, in the, in the carceral context, they just take that and weaponize it against you. And they literally hold it against you as a reason that you shouldn't, you should never get out. And there's also a strong distinction, uh, you know, having been incarcerated in women's prisons and also having taught. So I taught in a men's medium security prison for more than four years and also in a women's prison. There's no question that the enforcement, you know, sort of the control of, of gender and sexuality for women, you know, trans women, you know, femmes, you know, female presenting people in the system is ferocious in a way that is really not apparent in men's, like, you know, same-sex relationships in a men's prison are complex, but they aren't policed in the same way that women's sexual relationships are policed in, in prison, in prisons that hold women and girls. Like there's no, like, it was so striking to me when I was incarcerated and also in all my, all the subsequent years, what a ferocious, vehicle of patriarchy the prison system is and and that actually raises i think what would be a great final question given the seriousness of the the situation in this book and also the the rest of your work sort of the question about restorative justice so and and i think this is relevant for all of the commonwealth club uh audience members who are perhaps living in san francisco where we have a progressive prosecutor who is not going to charge crimes in the same and and harm in the same way that that many people have grown accustomed to over the last 40 years. But uh, it's hard to talk about restorative justice in just a thumbnail, and yet this is a fundamental part of your work. Um, And and you've written about it in the past in relationship to to wrongful, wrongful convictions. So if you had told me 10 years ago that people would speak as frequently and as seriously about restorative justice as they do now, I would have been skeptical. So I do feel like we've made progress. I, that, that progress has not necessarily taken root in the courtroom. So I am, uh, just as our, as our viewer is curious about this, I'm also curious about your take on where we're at when it comes to restorative justice. And maybe you could even just give give our our listeners a definition of that, because not all of them may be familiar with the restorative justice movement. 
Sure. So restorative justice is an idea that reconceptualizes or tries to reframe harm and accountability. And so rather than thinking about what did this person do and how much should we punish them, they think about it from the victim's point of view and they ask, what is this person's needs and how can I how can I meet those needs? And and oftentimes what we find out, and I think this actually ties into a lot of what we're talking about, is that victims aren't a monolith. And prosecutors love to say, I'm speaking for the victim, the victim wants this, the victim wants that. And oftentimes what they're trying to say is the victim wants the carceral solution. They want the most amount of time. They want the maximum punishment. They want the death penalty. They want life without parole. And it's actually a totally false reduction of victims. And it's particularly true. I've been writing a lot about restorative justice recently in my scholarship, which I won't delve into because we're not in an academic talk, but in terms of female victims and sexual assault, because that is the time when restorative justice is considered to be the most untouchable resolution. And that when you have a situation where there's been an allegation, an accusation, a conviction involving that kind of a harm, the system has almost always responded by saying, how much can we punish the offender under the guise of I'm speaking for the victim? And what's Mm. really interesting about this research is that victims are not monolithic. They don't all want the same thing. And for many victims, the criminal justice system is an infliction of distress and trauma that's truly terrible in part because the system is designed obviously to be adversarial. So if they go through that process, they, the jury has to treat them with skepticism. If they go to trial, if there's a guilty plea, the person says as little as possible at sentencing, there's going to be an appeal. So there's never going to be an acknowledgement of what happened or a validation of what happened. There's just going to be denial because they're going through a very particular process. And for some people that, that experience is just profoundly awful and unrewarding. The other Mm -hmm. thing it overlooks is that I think something like two thirds of these kinds of crimes involve people who know each other, involve people who live in the same communities. And what Mm -hmm. a lot of victims don't want are their communities ripped apart. They don't want the answer to be, okay, we're going to rip apart your community and and incapacitate it even more by saying that this person is untouchable and taking them away. And so I think that restorative justice is, is maybe approaching, like creeping towards having a moment Um, And that it's being used more often, certainly by progressive prosecutors. But I think that that's really the next frontier, because the way that we have handled victims of assault and perpetrators of assault in in that particular class of crimes in this country has been um, has been just profoundly disappointing in terms of the under prosecution, the under testing of rape kits and the and the poor treatment of victims. But part of that poor treatment is really is really the arrogance of pretending that they all want and need the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I could talk about restorative justice all night, but uh, we are but we are out of time, sadly. So I want to thank Laura Baslon, and again, remind you all to pick up your copy of A Good Mother. Thank you so much for joining us today and and talking about you know how you created this amazing book, but also all these incredible underlying issues. Um, For those of you who are watching, if you would like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming during this pandemic that we're still enduring, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. So um, make sure to do that. There's all kinds of wonderful programming that has already happened that you may be able to check out and a, a fascinating slate of upcoming events. Um, Laura, I really want to thank you for for joining me and for talking 
about all these issues and for writing this wonderful book. And I am really looking forward to your next book about motherhood. Um, it has been such an honor and a pleasure to talk to you. You've asked really interesting, thoughtful questions. I am such an admirer of your work. I can't wait for your next book. And yes, I'm a huge fan. So thank you for doing this. It means a lot to me. Yeah. Well, I encourage everyone to pick up a copy of the book because it is a page turner and you will learn a lot. If you're, if you're intrigued by all the things that we've talked about this evening, um, you'll learn a lot more on a very visceral narrative level. So I just want to thank you again and wish you good luck with the book tour. And, uh, and I hope that you get an opportunity to connect to readers um, all over the country. Have a lovely evening, everyone. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.